It is time once again for the Cubs Weekly Podcast presented by Wintrust, proud legacy partner of the Chicago Cubs and exclusive home of Cubs Checking. Open online today at Wintrust.com slash Cubs. Now, I'm Cole Wright, and alongside me, it's my man. It's Tony Andraki, Cub reporter and digital content manager at Marquee Sports Network. And Tony Tone, it looks as if baseball is taking a step in the right direction to get some meaningful games back on the diamond, as we know when we're recording this on a Monday, owners, they gave the players their latest proposal to get back to playing. And it looks as if we could, like I said, could be taking a step in the right direction, which is good news. Yeah, it's definitely good news. I mean, the most recent proposal that we've seen here, owners said 76 games is the schedule and then including potentially, you know, expanded postseason, expanded postseason pool of money for players as well. And that would help increase their overall bottom line and, and get the players paid a little bit more, which is what they wanted. So I, I think we definitely are getting closer here. And I, it's the timeline is really the most important part to me right now and where they need to go, because this has to happen very, very soon here, within days here of us recording this podcast, because they want to be able to get off the ground as soon as possible after that July 4th holiday. And they're going to need three to four weeks to make sure that pitchers and position players are get, can get in shape in spring training 2.0. So in order to make all that happen and to get 70-plus games, you really got to get started like that second week of July at the very latest. So hopefully baseball is on the cusp of returning. Yeah, time is of the essence. We don't have any meaningful baseball in the month of June for the first time since the 1800s. That's back in the day when people thought if you took a picture of them, that it would steal their soul. But until we get some baseball games that actually mean something back on the diamond, how about we get in touch with a guy who knows everything about the diamond? He was a Hall of Famer. And uh, when I was growing up, Tony, he was my favorite baseball player of all time. Andre Dawson. Let's listen up. All right, joining us now on Cubs Weekly Podcast, it is time for a very special guest uh, coming alongside Tony Andraki and myself. It is my pleasure to welcome in an eight-time All-Star, an NL MVP, an NL Rookie of the Year, an eight-time Gold Glover, plain and simple, one of the best to ever wear a Chicago Cubs uniform. Number eight, it's Andre Dawson. Andre, thanks so much for joining us on the Cubs Weekly Podcast. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. Thank you, guys. Actually, you know, thanks for, for joining us on the show here today. You know, first things first, you know, everyone is in, in a different state right now when it comes to, you know, where we're currently at. And I'm not talking geographically. I'm talking about everything that's going on. How you been holding up during this shutdown? Because as we know, March 12th, everything came to a screeching halt, Andre. Yeah, I, I've been doing fairly well. Just, you know, trying to adhere to procedure and use as much precaution as possible. You know, it's... It's really, really sad that uh, the pandemic itself, you don't know where it is. And uh, and then to the extent of how it's affected so many people uh, and shut everything down completely. So you just, you know, try to um, ride with it, uh, uh, abide the time and get through it as, as healthy and as safe as possible. Now, Andre, as we talk about the pandemic, we also have to address the current state of affairs in America. Now, after the senseless killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and the Black Lives Matter movement, what are your current thoughts of where we're at in 2020? Well, I'm 66 years old, and uh, I've witnessed a lot of this uh, during the course of my lifetime. And what I will say is, it doesn't really surprise me, uh, but it does make me very sad and 
kind of enraged to a degree. Um, I just, you know, I, I think more of it will come if we don't stop it today. Uh, I can feel the, uh, uh, I can sense the, the, the anger, the frustration and the pain uh, being uh, the result of, uh, being felt as a result of uh, the systematic injustice. And uh, I've, you know, I've gone down that road. I've had encounters um, with uh, law officials. And uh, for me, I just, you know, took a breath and I knew how to deal with the situation, not escalate and get to something that it shouldn't have. Uh, but I just think there's still, there's still a lot that has to be done. There's a lot that, uh, you know, we got to sit down and address and address uh, the system. Just, you know, it continues to, uh, to fail. And at some point you, you, you know, it's, it's, it's got to reform itself. Um, you know, we're going to continue to see, uh, what we're seeing today. Andre right now it, with, it's such a weird time because first week of June here, I mean, nobody has seen a baseball game yet. And that's so such a foreign concept for players, former players, for fans. What's that been like for you to get through this pandemic without baseball kind of being a crutch? Yeah, I think as, as far as everyone missing the game itself and really not having that outlet to, to turn to in a sense, uh, it, it just, you know, it's, it's just where we are, uh, uh, where the times are. And you uh, just try to, you know, get through it the best that you can. But sports in general, that's that's the outlet, uh, that kind of a cure-all uh, when, you know, uh, people are experiencing dire, desperate times and uh, they need something that, something that they could, they could uh, turn to as an outlet. Uh, but under the circumstances, you know, we um, look forward to it. And now it seems like, well, uh, the labor economical side of it is taking over and we don't know what's going to be the outcome with that. Uh, but everybody, uh, everybody that I've talked to and myself in particular, you know, we really miss the game and looking forward to the return of the game at some point. And you know, I don't know, hopefully it's, it, it's soon. Hopefully it's in the near future. Yeah, hopefully we can get baseball back sooner rather than later. I know that's a sentiment that we all share, Andre. But, you know, it's funny because, you know, as we were getting ready to do this yesterday, I was doing a little preparation for it. And, you know, I have, a, I have an eight-year-old daughter fitting num number eight. That's the number I picked when I was first able to pick a team. And I grew up in Joliet, Illinois. And when I watched Cubs games, Andre, you, you were the guy I really gravitated towards. Andre Dawson, there was none better. So when you grew up and you were watching games and you were listening to games on the radio, was there any one player – that jumped off the page to you when you were a kid, you said, I, when I grow up, I want to play just like this guy. Well, I uh, grew up being a LA Dodger fan. And that was um, because of uncles, uh, one that, that played college, high school, college, and he was drafted in the pirate organization. Uh, but the other two uh, also being Dodger fans, uh, one who bought me my first fielder's glove and got me started in the game. And the, the third uncle kind of being the father-like figure to me, a lot as lenient as uh, the other two, but uh, I could relate to, and, you know, he, like I said, he was kind of like a dad to me. Uh, and growing up, I got to see uh, not the L.A. Dodgers play. We only had the one game, and that one game a week, and that was the, 
uh, Saturday game of the week, and it only uh, would show certain teams. Uh, so I never really got to see a lot of the Dodgers. I would just read the box scores, and I knew who the players were. But the names that jumped out to me, of course, Mickey Mantle, uh, Hank Aaron, uh, Willie Mays, uh, because they were always in the limelight, and all you would hear is just great things about them. And I just kind of followed their careers a little bit closer. And I think, I, you know, once I got into high school, uh, through high school, college, uh, I got to see a little bit more baseball because I uh, went to school not that far from Atlanta and we would get a lot of the Braves games. And a young Dusty Baker kind of jumped out at me uh, because of his vigor, uh, his enthusiasm, his approach. Uh, Hank Aaron was still playing at the time and you know he was kind of like an idol uh, because of all the accomplishments and what he done had done in his career. Uh, but Dusty and I became real, real good friends because we were playing right about the same time. And I would say uh, player-wise, uh, during my tenure, I just liked his makeup and his attitude, uh, how he carried himself both on the field and off the field. And for me, he was one of those individuals that you can consider a role model in the game itself. Along that same topic, Andre, do you have a current Cub who is your favorite to watch or, or to have spoken with if you had an interaction with a lot of these guys? I've always uh, been admirable, admirable of Anthony Rizzo. Uh, just, you know, for the simplicity part of it, uh, he brings everything that you would uh, hope for in a ball player itself. Uh, he's in the lineup every day. Uh, he's a more than likable guy, and he's a leader. And uh, if you had, you know, uh, three or four of those on your ball club, you'd have you'd have a pretty good ball club. But I, I I've always followed him uh, through his career. He's a local guy. He's from Florida, so that made it a little bit more attractive, also. But just you know, off the top of my head, the Cubs have a a team uh, with some young, bright stars and. All of them can be very likable. But Anthony has been there uh, probably longer than any of them. And, you know, I just uh, keep my attention focused on uh, how his career is going and, you know, just the impact he can continue to have for that organization. Hawk, you hit a good point. Anthony Rizzo, Florida guy, as are you. And we'll start at the beginning of your career because back in 1977, that's when you came up with the Montreal Expos. What was it like to go from Florida – all the way north of the border to Canada. I mean, the, the temperature, we know that's a little bit different right there, but just the atmosphere, the, just the culture when you get up there, especially in Montreal. Well, you you hit it on the head, uh, the, the cold. <laughs> I, uh, I didn't know what to expect. I knew it was a, a French province, even though they had both French and, and English uh, as a language. Uh, the... the situation with customs uh, entering and leaving the country. Uh, then you had the, the disparity uh, with, well, the food itself. You didn't really know what you were ordering because the menus uh, would be in French in some places. Uh, that started as early as playing in Quebec City. But once I got to Montreal, I was just of the mindset that, you know, this is my dream. This is where I always wanted to be in the big leagues. And it's a little bit different, 
but uh, you at that point want to learn how you approach and continue to play and perform at that level. So you look to uh, different people to help guide you along also. And uh, there were there were a number of them, Tony Perez, uh, Dave Cash. They, you know, just would literally take you under their wing, Pete Rose, uh, for a stint, and kind of help bring you along and, and make that, that a comfort zone for you playing at that level. And I... Um, I just said, you know, uh, this is, you know, where I am. They gave me this opportunity, and I just got to do what it takes to to stay here. And, you know, before you know it, uh, you're not a young player anymore. You've a veteran status, and you find yourself in the same boat as those guys that you looked up to and took you into their wing. Now you got to do it to the younger players beneath you. Andre, after your Montreal career was over and you became a free agent, there's the legend of the whole blink contract and, and how you came about to the Cubs before that 1987 season. How did that whole story come about? How much of it is true? How much of it is not? Can you give us more of an idea and background of that? Well, I was 10 years in and I was coming up on uh, free agency. I had been dangled around in trade rumors with the White Sox of all teams and the Yankees. And I, I really had the mindset that I want to retire wearing one uniform. Um, I didn't anticipate uh, getting traded or, or having to have to test the free agent market. But that was kind of an eye-opener for me. Uh, an interesting thing happened. I was out on the playing field, and one of the grounds uh, keepers were, it was from Chicago, and he had a White Sox hat. And uh, I, this was in September, and I said, um, uh, let me see. No, this was August. And I said, let me see uh, what this hat looks like. And I put it on, and I said, what do you think? And he said, no, no, that, that don't look like you. And lo and behold, it gets back to the front office that I was, I was down on the field with a White Sox cap on, uh, and appropriately out of uniform. And I said, no, 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 that wasn't the case. I just took a photo for a brief second to see what that looked like since there were rumors I was going to be moved to probably more so the White Sox. And Daryl Boston was mentioned in the deal. I think he was a up-and-coming um, prospect and who Montreal had a lot of interest in. Well, uh, one thing led to another, and we never really was able to get anything worked out. It, it drug into the off season. I met with the owner and the president uh, the last day of the season, uh, but uh, to uh, no degree was any movement made. And I can remember the uh, the offer that they made me. It was a three year deal, making two hundred thousand dollars less than I was originally making uh, as a free agent. And I said, no, this isn't going to work because this is the only leverage that I've, I've ever had. And if I'm allowed to test the market, if I'm forced to test the market, then I'm just going to go somewhere and, and, and play at my terms and not yours. And uh, I didn't want to take this attitude or approach, but it just seemed to drag into the offseason. And I met with John McHale, the president, and he said their offer stood and had I given it any thought or consideration, then I 
I mentioned to him, I think the writing is on the wall. It's probably time for me to move on. And I knew uh, because of collusion during the time that teams weren't talking to free agents, I made a comment to my wife. I said, well, uh, no one's talking to me. Uh, I'm probably uh, going to consider or think about going to Japan. And she said, I'll see you when you come back. So I uh, I knew that was kind of out of the window and in the dark. And I sat down with my agent and I said, you know, I said, um, it's not about money. It's not a monetary issue now. It's about pride and principle. And I got to make a decision and know that I have to live with it and be happy with what that decision is. I said, right now, there's only one place that in my heart I I really want to be. And I said, that's Chicago. I said, I just love Wrigley Field. I I love the city itself. I love the fans. I love daytime baseball. I said, I also like Atlanta because it's still in the National League, a natural playing surface, and it's closer to my home. I said, but I, I really would like to get to Chicago if I can. And he said, well, he said, okay, so be it. He said, they're already in spring training. And uh, what we got to do is, you know, be a little creative. We can't go out there and uh, force a a sit down uh, discussion with them about uh, signing a contract. He said, you know, we got to make them an offer that they just simply can't can't refuse. And I knew I was sticking my neck out and I knew it couldn't be a monetary offer. And I just said, well, if, if, if they're willing to pay me what they think I'm worth, then so be it. I'll go down and and just let it, you know, be done. And at that point, uh, we considered the blank contract. We went out and uh, unexpectedly met with Dallas Green, and he didn't know what to make of it. He wanted to evaluate it. He talked about the young players he had that needed the opportunity to play. And I just said, I'm going to leave it. I'm going to leave it on the table for 24 hours. I'm going to West Palm Beach, do the same thing with Atlanta. And he called me the next day and made me an offer, which was $500,000 less than Montreal was offering. But as I said, I I just wanted to get to Chicago the best way that I could. And I accepted his offer. Yeah, Andre, you know, the change of scenery more times than not. For some players, it works. For others, it doesn't. For you in 1987, we saw a complete renaissance with you and your career but you know the one thing that jumped off the page to me when you're talking about different destinations as you were getting ready to leave Montreal as you said you wanted to stay in a, on an NL team and the natural surface you know for those who, who aren't really aware of the Montreal Expos and their playing surface I mean that was that was AstroTurf 1.0 I mean it was, it was concrete it was the the, the green carpet and it, it took a lot of years off a lot of players life when you were able to go to Chicago and play on that lush Wrigley Field outfield. How did the knees feel? I tell you, it was like night and day, especially when we would go on road trips after playing uh, maybe uh, a homestand, seven games, ten games on the natural playing surface and then going on the turf. About the third day is when I would really uh, feel a noticeable difference, and that is the stiffness and soreness start to set in. I think playing on the turf all those years I kind of grew into blocking it out and not making, you know, that big of a deal out of it. But uh, once I did uh, get to Chicago and I was able to uh, see the difference in the two, it, it, it was like night and day. I just felt uh, so much better 
uh, on the legs, even though I, I still had my issues. I just knew what my routine was and, you know, how I need to prepare for a game itself. And I stuck with that and, you know, tried to just use as much precaution now when I went back on uh, the road and had to play on a national turf. Hawk, what was it back in 87? Was it the change of scenery that, that, that had that renaissance? Or was it the fact that, you know, you bet on yourself? You said, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to go to Chicago. Here's my deal. And if I don't live up to expectations, it could be a short stint in the Windy City. Yeah, well, uh, I uh, lost my grandmother, who uh, was my uh, chief mentor in life. And I said to myself, I wasn't going to set any goals wherever I played. I was just going to go out and have as much fun as I can and dedicate it, uh, the season to her. And that's kind of what I did. I just relaxed a little bit more and tried to make it as fun and enjoyable as I possibly could. And then, you know, it was the fans that embraced me and allowed me not to feel my way around, but feel like I was uh, a part of that team and I belonged there. And in a sense, it just kind of, fueled me, ignited me one thing after the other. And I think once I finally got settled in, I struggled a little bit. I had a good spring when I did go to the spring training, when I reported to the Cubs, but I got off to a slow start uh, with the season. And I think once I uh, hit the first home run in, in St. Louis, a grand slam off Todd Warrell to win a ball game, uh, that got me going. Things just started to to happen on a daily basis. And, hey, I, I, I was up and running. And, again, the, the fans were the ones that ignited me every day. Andre, what's your favorite memory of playing with the Cubs? Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there are so many. Um, I, got, I got a chance to uh, leave a lot of good friends uh, in Montreal uh, and develop a lot of new friends in, in, in Chicago. And I think that's what you miss the most uh, when you uh, move from one organization and you're out of the game. It's the, it's the friendships, not necessarily the game itself. Uh, but what I think, uh, uh, how I would answer that question is just the, the overall uh, Wrigley Field aura, um, the enthusiasm. Uh, the the way the fans enjoy themselves. Uh, I can recall once uh, being out in right field. I, I think I was struggling. I was in a slump, and I could hear a voice call from you know the right field bleachers, and I felt kind of reluctant to turn around, but it was a female, and I was probably old for fifteen or so. And, yeah, you're contemplating on that. You, you don't want to take it out uh, on defense with you. But uh, she said, hey, Andre, turn around, turn around. And uh, I turned around, and what did she do? She flips up her blouse, and she had no bra on. And, well, I know I'm not going to say what fell out. But, <laughs> man, I tell you, I had to chuckle at it because the next time up I hit a home run, and then I got another hit. And, and the game itself. And the same person came out uh, a couple of days later and she said, see, I got you going. And <laughs> it was, it was, it was funny to me. Uh, that uh, would always stick with me because 
hey, the fans were who they were. They they were Andre's on me and whomever was out there, you know, I knew they always had my bike and uh, that salaaming thing that, you know, they came up with. I just tried to extend the courtesy at the end of one game, my my uh, first year there uh, as a form of my appreciation. And it was just a love affair that, uh, you know, I, I, I could never have envisioned it. And it, it just didn't exist in Montreal. Yeah, fans at Wrigley Field are the best. Overzealous fans, sometimes they can get you out of those slumps. That's, <laughs> that's one good thing about the friendly confines. Now, we, you know, we talked about your favorite player growing up, your favorite moment at Wrigley Field, but, you know, we've had Mark Grace on Cubs 360, Andre, and, you know, he speaks glowingly of you. But when it comes to your favorite Cubs teammate, is there any one guy who you were like, man, I just love going to the ballpark and, you know, cutting up with him and talking baseball because he was that guy every day? Well, I had the locker between Ryan Sandberg and Sean Dunstan. Uh, one that really didn't say anything at all. Uh, you had to look at him and stare him down to make him say, what's up? How are you? And the other one that just wouldn't shut up. And uh, I think you know uh, which was which. Um, but Sean was, you know, he was like, he was like a gnat that you had to kind of swat away. Uh, but just, you know, as lovable as can be. and all out um, when he was out on the playing field itself. And it was just a joy to be around. And uh, he would ask you a lot of questions. With Sean, he always just wanted to learn. He wanted to continue to learn. And he always called me Pops. So I knew what that meant. Um, Well, there's, you know, a little bit different uh, kind of attitude and approach I got to have with Sean. But he was, you know, we uh, he was there the entirety of my career as a Cub, and because I was locked right next to him, he was probably my favorite. Now, mid-'80s, we know that shortstop and right field, there was some serious long toss going on there. Who, who has the better arm? Who had the better arm, Andre? You or Sean Dunstan? Well, it's a different throw. Um, yeah. uh, Sean had a strong arm from his position, a ball that, you know, would get up on you, and his ball would take off and would rise. Poor Mark Grace. You know, uh, Mark Grace made made um, I should say Sean made Mark Grace into a great defensive first baseman, uh, having to pick that stuff out of the dirt and stuff that would sail foot over his head, headed for the stands. Uh, I I probably uh, had more carry on my throws uh, as as uh, much as velocity, and I say it's a different throw in a sense uh, because. Uh, from the outfield, you have to have a little bit more accuracy uh, because of uh, the length of the throw itself. Uh, and I worked on that. I worked on uh, distance. I worked on velocity. And for me, it was more about stretching the arm out, stretching the muscles in the shoulder out, and then working work on power throwing. But Sean had, from the shortstop position, he had one of the strongest arms in the game that I'd ever seen. Andre, along those same lines, if, if you could turn back the clock and be able to suit up for one more Major League Baseball game, what would be the one play you'd be looking forward to most? Would it be throwing out a base runner from the outfield or hitting a homer, making a diving catch, or just hearing your name over the public address announcing at uh, Wrigley Field? Oh, man. Uh, and I don't miss playing the game. <laughs> so I, I guess I, I wouldn't say putting the uniform on and, 
you know, going back out um, to play. But if I had to to really go that direction, I would say having a reversal of the 89 season uh, when we had that chance to um, go to, uh, well, win, win the playoffs and go to the World Series. Uh, I say that in a sense because uh, I was injured at the time. I needed uh, a knee procedure done. I had the procedure done right after we lost to the Giants. And I just look back at that. Uh, it was a golden opportunity uh, for me, uh, fresh off of, um, you know, coming off of uh, the MVP a couple of years ago. And it had it hadn't really been done in Chicago in forever. So I look back at that that Giants series in the playoffs when uh, we fell short and didn't make it to the World Series. That probably uh, would be the closest thing to putting the uniform on and going back out and playing again. Andre, taking a look at your resume, I mean, a lot of guys, once they're done playing, and especially once they've gone into the Hall of Fame, they try to stay close to the game. But I'm looking at your resume right now, and it's multifaceted. A music producer, a restaurateur, and now – you're running a funeral home, but let's go back to the beginning. How did you actually get into producing music? Well, I grew up, you know, uh, during the era of uh, disco, and I played uh, a little bit with R&B and hip-hop, and I was always an avid uh, music fan. And at the inkling of a friend of mine who uh, was about to start a record label, he thought that you know, it, it might be something I might be interested in and coming on with him as an investor, as a partner and starting a record label. And uh, that was just something to get going and, and give an opportunity to a few people who were uh, seeking uh, or had an interest in uh, being uh, musicians and not knowing anything about the business. Yeah, you, you're diving into it and uh, it's, it's going to be something, uh, that's going to be an eye opener, uh, in a sense. And you don't really know, or have an idea of, uh, what it's going to entail. I just, uh, kind of went out on a limb and took that chance, but probably that, you know, along with the restaurant, those, those were the, the worst decisions I ever had to make business wise. Andre, you mentioned you don't miss playing the game. Why, why do you think that is? Uh, because I played the game uh, for 21 years at the major league level. And I probably played a little bit longer. I, I wanted to give the uniform back as opposed to having it taken away. And I felt that I really put my time in. And when it was time to move on past the baton, uh, I accepted that. Uh, I think, in a sense, with uh, the history of all of the knee issues, I was really beat up. I was beat up at the end. My body was crying out to me. I had, you know, my my two kids uh, that were very young and they needed uh, they needed a father at home. And I wanted to see them grow up. I, I didn't, you know, want to lose that part of their life. So I just, you know, made the decision uh, to uh, give the uniform back. And uh, it was tough. It was tough for me to uh, get up to the podium and address the media and say that I was going to retire. But an interesting thing happened. I was in Florida. I was playing for the Marlins at the time. 
and I wanted to do it. Uh, I just wanted to walk away from the game. I had had uh, a, another knee procedure done uh, right around the, the 1st of April. And I just thought that that was the one that was really going to do me in because it took so much time for me to to come back from it. So I just said, uh, you know, this is going to be it. They wanted me to wait until the end of the year to uh, really announce it and, and, and retire because they wanted me to go through that whole tour of all of the ballparks. I didn't really want it, but I just went ahead and, and would adhere to their wishes. And I can remember addressing the media and uh, nothing would come out. And I stood there and I looked at everyone and they looked at me and I just went blank. I went totally blank. And um, Darius, my son, I think he was he was five years old at the time. And he he got up from where he was seated with his mom and he walked up to me and he grabbed my hand and he said, it's OK, Dad. And at that point, I was able to go ahead and address the media. And uh, it was tough. It was tough to uh walk away from it was the only thing that you ever knew and it was your livelihood but like i said in a sense i put my time in and uh, i was happy with the thing the way things went if i had to do it all over again i uh, the only thing i would change is i wouldn't have played high school football hmm. interesting why is that why would you not play high school football andre well that's where i got hurt initially and i had my first surgery um, I was very bitter and anger, uh, angered about it, and I didn't do any form of therapy or rehab. None was prescribed. I was a 17-year-old kid with no direction. So once I had the cast removed, I just put a knee brace on, hobbled around, uh, practiced my senior year. I had um, not by my standards uh, a good senior year at all. All of the scouts disappeared, and I went to college with the, uh, the the prospect of getting my education first and going out and playing baseball second uh, through the wishes of my grandmother. And she always said, "If uh, if you got the talent, the ability, uh, someone will take notice. But your 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 the thing that's going to be your stepping stone in life uh, is your education." And with that, I went to try it out for uh, the baseball team at Florida and made the team as a freshman, made the starting lineup. And at the end of my third year, I was I was drafted uh, by the Expos. But uh, it was just uh, the fact that I didn't know what to expect after, you know, having uh, knee surgery, because I was told even after being drafted, I would only play four years. That's the average lifespan. And you already have an underlying condition. Uh, so uh, things, the odds were kind of stacked against me. And I just say playing football because that just kind of what set everything in motion. Well, I think everything worked out as planned because uh, 2010 inductee into Cooperstown. And, you know, you said that you wanted to give the uniform back as opposed to have it taken off of you. And, and that that really sounds like another Chicago icon, because I don't know if you had a chance, Andre, to watch the last dance. But that's what Michael Jordan said. He said, I, I want to be able to walk off of this court. I don't want them to drag me off of this court. And that makes me think back to the famous poster. Any kid that grew up in Chicago, at least when I was coming up, they remembered the class for all seasons poster. It had the Chicago Sun-Times behind it. It was you, Michael Jordan, 
and Walter Payton. Can you take us inside of that photo shoot? Because I want to know what was going on because the smiles that you guys had on your faces in that poster, I mean, they were second to none. Well, we were shooting jabs. That's what athletes do when they get together just to help process and pass some time. But uh, what I remember uh, the most was that uh, uh, the tuxedos were, they were a little bit small. Uh, the shirts didn't fit at all. We had to cut the shirts at the sleeves. At least I did anyway. And pull it down so it would look appropriate length and put a rubber band so that it w- wouldn't move. And the photo shoot itself, it was pretty, pretty interesting. Uh, we got through it. Uh, it took about uh, about four hours. But uh, that was that was a magical, um, I think, poster shot. A magazine cover shot uh, is what it set out to be, and posters were made of it. And uh, interestingly enough, I talked to John Kostakos, um, uh, the the brains behind it, the one that you know was uh, instrumental in pulling all of this off. And he sent me um, he sent me a book, a Hall of Fame book of all of the uh, the posters that they shot, and the history of uh, why that. Um, poster was created what was the significance behind it and it was it's pretty interesting reading and uh just you know uh to be able to be there after only one year and be considered in the same breath uh with two icons in chicago uh it was both humbling for me and you know uh, an enjoyable feat for me andre you're considered in the same breath as the most the best baseball players of all time as a member of the Hall of Fame. And it's actually been 10 years now this year uh, since you were inducted into the Hall of Fame with, you know, about a decade uh, perspective to look back at it. What has that meant to you? What has the last 10 years of, of your life been knowing, you know, hey, I, I left everything on the field. You left the game when you wanted to, like you said, and you ended up in the Hall of Fame. At, at the outset, you it kind of played with you. Uh, as, you know, did I do enough? Uh, why is it taking so long? And then it might not happen. And uh, once I had my window in, in 2010, there was no one for me to hurdle. Uh, teammates that I had played with had already gotten in. And I just said, well, uh, this could be the year. Uh, so I did something that I had never done before. And my my mom and my mother had passed away. and uh, for me, the most gratifying thing would have been for them to live to see that moment. Uh, but it didn't happen. I I went to, it was January 2010, I went to their grave sites uh, the day uh, of the expected announcement. And I knelt, I prayed, I wept, and uh, I actually spoke. I said, if if what I think is going to happen today, I hope you're looking down and I hope that I've made you proud. I said, um, uh, I don't know. Uh, it's been a long time coming. That's what my mom used to always tell me. It's, it's inevitable. Just be patient and, you know, let it, let it play itself out. And I left very exhausted as a result of that business. Uh, so I, um, I just wanted to, kind of dedicate my Hall of Fame speech to the two of them and what they meant to me in life growing up. And uh, getting there is as, as tough as it is. 
I never really played the game uh, with that vision. Uh, I set goals to play only 15 years. And once I got to year 15, I felt that, well, I still had something left. And if I didn't, I assumed that, well, I wouldn't make a ball club or there wouldn't be any interest in I would, you know, be home with my kids. Well, I, you know, played 21 years, and now it's really slapping me in the face. It's time to walk away, walk away. And like I said, when I thought about my career uh, post-retirement, the first thing came to mind was, uh, did I do enough? Um, the hall is so sacred. Uh, you know, that's, that's the way the writers hold it. it. It's very sacred. It's a tough hall. And if I if I did enough, then the process would play itself out, and it would eventually happen. It took nine years, and uh, the 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 irony of it is, it did lose its luster for me, but I didn't lose hope or, or faith. I just didn't get my hopes up until uh, I realized that there was no one in front of me to hurdle, and that was my golden opportunity. Now, Andre, you make mention that, you you know, you made it in on your ninth ballot in 2010. You were inducted into Cooperstown. And, you know, I don't, it, it, it was be obviously because of, you know, your, your Hall of Fame career, but it also could have been a, a, a little bit predicated on that, that Hall of Fame meltdown you had back in 1991. I mean, all I really need to do is say 1991 <laughs> and Joe West, because as we know, things with Joe West really haven't changed that much over the years. We see guys empty bat racks, it seems like, on a yearly basis when it comes to that guy. Well, uh, for me, it was it was completely out of character, and I, um, I I was never really temperamental. Uh, I was focused, determined. I had a, a a certain glare about me, a stare, uh, and that wasn't to be uh, taken as a form of intimidation for the opposition. But I didn't mess with people. I uh, played the game the way I was supposed to, kept to myself, um, and just tried to be as relaxing and fun-feeling around my teammates. And uh, Joe was, you know, uh, the way I, des I described Joe is um, Joe would try you. I mean, it, a lot of times it, was, it, was, it wasn't bad intentions, but he'd just try you and sometimes – wasn't the best of times for you to try someone, especially uh, when they're struggling. And uh, with with him, I just felt, you know, he was having a tough day. I, I've been thrown only out of two games, and I thought it was by two of the worst, Joe and Angel Hernandez. And, and I just, you know, uh, that particular instance, I just said, you know, he, he's having a bad day, but, you know, uh, I can't give him the benefit of the doubt because it has to end. And when he rung me up, uh, yeah, there were some some words exchanged, and I just, you know, told him to get a grip. It's not that hard. You know, the strike zone is not that big. And it was just that smirk smile about him that set me off. And he told me to go sit down, and I just said, I can stand here as long as I desire. And when I said that, it's when he threw me. And I just, you know, the thing that hit me first is, okay, I'm going to get my money's worth. And back then, you could get away with it because you're going to get fined, what, $100. And that's, that's getting my money's worth. But 
I played no part. I was I, the 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 letter that I got said I incited a riot. Um, uh, you know what the regular faithful did as a result of that. I was back in the clubhouse by then, uh, but I said I was going to get my money's worth. And uh, what continued to irk me was that he was walking toward me and he was still smiling. And that's when you know the bats left. Uh, second. A uh, slew of bats left, then the, the the Gatorade cooler left, and at that point, I felt okay. I got my money's worth, and I was gone. And you mentioned the, um, the Wrigley faithful and everything that they've meant to you in your career. I, mean, I know how much you've meant to them too over your time, and uh, you've also talked about the '89 team and you know how close you guys came. But watching the 2016 team finally end this World Series drought. What was that like for you? What emotions did that bring about from you? And and maybe how long did it take for you to to sit and kind of realize that this 108-year championship drought is finally over? Man, that was more nervous watching than playing itself. I, um, I think for everyone that uh, ever wore a Cubs uniform and to see them get to that point and, you know, to have it within their grasp, I, uh, I, just, I just marveled. I was at game five, and I was supposed to throw out the first pitch. And I sat in game five, watched that, and I can remember a conversation uh, I had with manager Madden. I just said, um, Joe Madden, I just said, um, uh, the team is, is playing a little bit tight. And he said, yeah, he said, you know, you're right. He says, we're going to win this game tonight, and we're going to go and – and in Cleveland, and we're gonna, you know, wrap this thing up. And I looked at him, and I kind of smiled. I said, "Well, at least you know he has confidence that you know this team can can come back because that 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 just doesn't happen." And once they got the game seven, uh, I I had a proposal to uh, do an event uh, for Uber and Fanatics in Chicago if the Cubs won the World Series. If they lost. Then they were going to use Kenny Lofton in Cleveland to do the same exact appearance. And I just, uh, I was more in tune to watching the game itself, excited about game seven of the World Series and how they fought back. And now it's right there in their grasp. And I said to myself, I said, well, I don't want to, I don't want to pack because I don't want to jinx them. And I wouldn't pack. Now, I knew I had to get up five. Uh, well, I had to be at the airport by five o'clock the following morning if the Cubs won to to catch a six a.m. flight to Chicago. But I wouldn't pack. And I sat and I watched the game. I, you know, watched them have a two-run lead. And you know, well, it's you know a couple of innings to play. And I think around the eighth inning, I go in. I start throwing some games. The bottom end, throwing some games together. And I come back. And my God, the game is tied. And the only thing I could think about was I jinxed them. And it's not going to happen. So now, obviously, of course, you know, you you got to watch the rest of the game. It gets to the rain delay. And it's just not looking good. And once play resumed, uh, they score, they go up. And you, now you got to, to fight them off. Uh, Cleveland, that is, that. Uh, bottom half of the inning 
and I couldn't sit. I remember standing with my arms folded, watching the television in anticipation that, you know, they're going to do it. They're going to do it. Of course, now the game is over. They win the World Series, and you got to watch the celebration. And I'm on Eastern time, and it's almost 1 a.m. in the morning. And I can't go to bed because now I got to get up at five at at 4:30. Uh, it's it, it's a celebration that goes on for a couple of hours, and uh, it's what three o'clock in the morning. Uh, but I did close my eyes for a brief hour and a half, and I was able to make my flight get to Wrigley Field. And I tell you, that was that was sensational. I think for everyone that ever ever wore that Cubs uniform, what what an incredible moment for them. Yeah, I don't think most of us sat down or got much sleep that night. November 2nd, 2016, a day that we will all remember very fondly. Now, Andre, before we get you out of here, you're, as we said, a 2010 inductee into Cooperstown this year. There's going to be no ceremonies in upstate New York. And right now, I mean, this is the first time we haven't seen baseball this deep into a season since the 1800s. How crazy is this to you right now? And how much do you want to see baseball back? Well, I'm, I'm anxiously awaiting. Uh, the thing in Cooperstown, um, uh, that's understandable, uh, you know, because of the situation and the times we're in. But we got to get baseball back. Uh, we got to get sports back, period. And I'm just going to, you know, uh, continue to wait it out. Uh, I think that it's, it's close. Hopefully it is close. And uh, we could see it sometime in July. But I'm just, you know, like every other fan out there, wading this thing out, uh, just hoping for the better and hoping to, to see the game we love so much return. Yeah, hopefully baseball comes back immediately, if not soon. And when it does, Andre Dawson, Hall of Famer, he will be there watching. Andre, thanks so much for taking time out and joining Tony Andraki and myself here on the Cubs Weekly Podcast. And we know when you hit one out at Wrigley Field, when you hit one over the fence, Thanks so much, Andre. Appreciate the time. Thank you, Andre. All the best. Take care. Stay safe. Man, Tony, always good stuff catching up with Andre Dawson. You know, I hope I didn't fanboy out a little bit, but like I said, you know, Andre Dawson was my favorite player growing up. And uh, just to hear that story about the class for all seasons poster, I mean, rubber bands and cut shirts, that's second to none, man. Yeah, that was great, Cole. And I love Dawson's perspective just on the game today, uh, how he doesn't actually miss the game. And then the way that he, the the odd way that he busted out of a slump one time at Wrigley Field, that was <laughs> probably my favorite story that he had there. Yeah, he says he doesn't miss playing, but I wonder if he misses hitting him over a true link fence. We'll have to get to that next time we have him on Cubs Weekly Podcast. And speaking of, we're presented by Trust, power partner of the Chicago Cubs and the only place to get your Cubs debit card. Get yours today at Wintrust.com slash Cubs. I'm Cole Wright, and for my guy, Tony Andraki, we'd like to thank you for tuning in to this edition of the Cubs Weekly Podcast. And now remember, always subscribe on Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. And we will see you next Tuesday. Enjoy the rest of your weekend.